eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. So there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome to the Jill on Money Show. It is Independence Day. It's Monday, July 4th. And today and tomorrow, we're going to re-air an interview that uh, we had conducted with Seth Kugel, who, when we interviewed him, was the frugal traveler columnist for The New York Times. He's now got a new column for The Times called Tripped Up. What we loved about this interview, which was conducted prior to the pandemic, was that he just makes travel writing so much fun and he makes it really interesting to think about how to approach your travel. So here's part one with our interview with Seth Kugel. When you think about travel writing in general, yeah. it sometimes can be kind of boring. So how do you make it exciting? Uh, well, to me, travel writing now is all about your personal experience. Uh, if you want the facts about where to go, it's all online. You just Google it. You look on TripAdvisor. You look on booking.com for the hotel and you read all the facts about it. Travel is all about your personal experience. And that means doing things your own way, not listening to what other people say you should do, not going to see the Mona Lisa when you're in Paris, unless you're dying to see the Mona Lisa. Yeah, because there are some crowds there. It's an it's amazing. <laughs> and yet you look at people's selfies who sit there, who go to the Mona Lisa, and it looks like they're alone with the Mona Lisa. A lot of the stuff we get from travel marketing, it's kind of a lie. I mean, they want you to go to the most, they want to go to Venice and Paris and do the most typical things and go to the Caribbean and sit in a resort. Travel is really about getting out into the world, meeting people or, or seeing marvelous nature, but not surrounded by a bunch of other travelers. So I always advocate, I'm not saying you need to go off to the most obscure village where there's never been any tourist ever, although that is a lot of fun, and I have done that. Uh, I'm just talking about getting a little bit away from the mainstream travelers and stop posting so much on Instagram and thinking about the people who are back home and getting and, and getting out there and doing what you want to do, thinking about, like, what do I want to get out of this trip? Do you love 
food and eating. Uh, a lot of people do. So, you know, center your trip around markets that sell ex- exotic fruits or uh, about uh, great bakeries in the place where you're going to. I mean, Colombia, for example, is a great country to eat in bakeries. People don't, don't know that Colombia has great bakeries. Well, I have to admit, I live in a Colombian neighborhood in Jackson Heights, Queens. Which also has great food. Which has great food. So there's a ton of Colombian bakeries I go to all the time. Uh, here's a little, I just was in Prague in the Czech Republic doing a story. And I am a total beer snob in the United States. Really? I always have IPAs, you know, okay. India Pale Ale, because I think it has more flavor than regular beer. And I used to drink regular old lagers in the U.S. And then I just got to be, I guess, snobby. I'm a little bit of a snob. I'll, okay, I'll it. own it. But then in Prague, everything's Pilsner. And I loved it because they just have it. It's so fresh. It's so well made. And I turned into a Pilsner snob <laughs> being in the Czech Republic. And I, my trip really turned out to be focused around beer. Of course, I went to Prague Castle. Um, I ate a lot of in these traditional sort of former communist cafeterias, which were cool. But what I remember about the trip is going to be I've sort of been turned on again to another kind of beer, which will impact my day-to-day life. And it, it is really what you want. You want to come back from a trip. A lot of people think, oh, I'm just going to go relax. But what you want is you want a trip that changes your life in some way. It doesn't have to be a, a huge change. It doesn't have to be like uh, a new career or anything like that. But some way that, in, at least in a little way, it changes your life. Like I appreciate a, a, a new kind of of beer, or I've made some new friends, mm-hmm. say, in a village somewhere. When you write an article about the experience, talk about the feedback that you get from the readers, because I think that so many people are striving for the experience, but they struggle to say, like, okay, I've got my guidebook, and i got to check these things off. How do you suggest they balance that? One of my, I think, it might be my top piece of advice of all time is, of course, you want to plan your trip, and you want to look in the guidebooks, and Look online and read reviews and all that kind of stuff. The sacrifice you make for being spontaneous in travel is very small. Right. You're going to lose a, an hour at most maybe. Uh, oh, you see a, a store or, or you, you, you're on your way to a fancy restaurant, but you see a really – like you're in Italy and you see a little neighborhood bistro that's really just totally packed with people and someone's playing music and a couple of people are dancing. Well, you know, walk in anyway. See if there's a table for you. Screw your reservation in a, in a fancy restaurant and, and, see, and, you know, what the worst thing that can happen again. Oh, you have a bad meal? Well, first of all, I doubt you're going to have a bad meal. Uh, second of all, what, you missed a uh, Michelin-starred restaurant in Italy? Oh, go to a Michelin-starred restaurant back home and, you know, make up for it or something like that. So I really advise people to not get caught up in a list of things they have to do and just check them off. Checking off lists is the worst possible way to travel. I hate the term bucket list mm. because it makes you think that there are certain things people have to see in order to be a civilized, cultured traveler. Mm. One of the places people love to go traveling these days is Thailand. I've never been to Thailand. I'm a travel writer and I've never been to Thailand. Really? I, I feel bad. Do I feel bad about that? Sort of in a superficial way I do. Yeah. But you know what? I do Latin America and Europe. That, those are the places I like to go. And, you know, I've been to Korea. I've been to China. But I've never been to Thailand. Would I like to go? If you handed me a ticket, would I go tomorrow? I would. But I'm not, like, wrapped up in the fact that I haven't been to Thailand. And you don't feel bad about you yourself? Sh- well, people just look at me. They're like, what do you mean you've never been to Thailand? And I say, well, look, I've been to, I have a lot of friends in Brazil. I have a lot of friends in Mexico. I have a lot of friends in France. I like to visit places multiple times. There's another piece of advice. Don't think you have to be everywhere once. And a lot of times, it's better to be in one place five times 
than to go to five different countries once. You get to know a place. Maybe you pick up a few words of the language. You meet people. The people in a in the in the corner store remember you from the last time you stayed in that same bed and breakfast or whatever. I think that that's a great advice because I think that there are people who say like, oh, I have to go to this place or that place. And I think about even uh, the last time that I was in Italy, I had never been to this one region called Emilia Romagna, Mm. which is supposed to be like the best food of Italy. And so we like had gone to Venice and actually someone said to me, Ugh, Venice, I hate Venice. Like, everybody gets a hate on for something, and they'll tell you, oh, let me tell you why I hate Venice. Too crowded. We had an amazing time. We went to these weird neighborhoods, part that are, like, uh, like the part of Venice that nobody goes to. It was amazing. Like you said, we just ambled in. We never. I don't even think we went to a site. I swear to God, I think we just walked all over and tried to figure out. We said, how long will it take to get lost every day in Venice, which was kind of a fun thing. Sure, getting lost is great. Okay, so we rent a car. And we drove across the middle of Emilia-Romagna and we ate our way for like the next five days. And I think we had a reservation in a, a small hotel, but that was it. And then we met people and we met the guy who was like a weird U.S., like he was Italian born, U.S. lawyer, started a vineyard, took us out for dinner, wanted us to meet his friend who owns the restaurant, met them, did that. Like those are the things that are so memorable to me. One good way to choose where you want to go is how friendly the people have a reputation of being there. So it's Italy, one of, it's probably its greatest strength mm-hmm. is that this sort of adventure in Italy is easy to have as long as you can get out of, well, you did the right thing going to other neighborhoods in Venice. And by the way, that's not even that hard. Just Google like non-touristy Venice mm-hmm. and you're going to find a lot of pieces of, you don't have to go, to, again, you don't have to go to a place with no tourists, just places that are a little less crowded. But then Italians are so wide open to meeting new people and they're a lot of fun, especially in small towns that are a little lazier. Now, if you're thinking about these experiences, do you have an opinion hotel versus Airbnb? Do you think both have merits? What, what's your, how do you come down on this? Well, um, I do think they both have merits. I think it depends on what you want. If if you want a sort of a more catered experience and you want to have things be a little easier than a hotel is probably the way to go. There's always a little bit of complication with a, a vacation rentals like Airbnb. There's always a chance that you're not going to meet up with a person at the right time. And there's always a chance it's not going to be quite what you thought it was going to be. I, I do use Airbnb. I, it's not my favorite company. Uh, I think that Why it's, is that? Well, it, it's a little bit like Uber in, in the sense that they they do skirt the law in a lot of places. And, and now, you know, we live in New York, and in New York there's a lot of Airbnb rentals that are illegal. They, keep, they even have it out on the subway. Have you seen this? The, these announcements, please report anyone illegally renting out their apartment in your building. Oh, yeah. And that's because Airbnb, they basically allow you to do it until you're caught. Right. Kind of. And I don't like that. It impacts, I was in a neighborhood in Lisbon. I stayed in a wonderful Airbnb. It's great, for, basically. It's great for travelers. It's not always great for the people living in the city. That's right. that's the problem. But if you're a traveler and you know you have no conscience like me, you do the best thing. Stop for, it. Know, just kidding. But but Airbnb is a really it's a great idea for a company, and uh, it's been very successful. And the reason is it is cool to stay in a residential neighborhood. So all other things being equal, I'd rather stay in an apartment or a house in a residential area close to the touristy area where the attractions are than to stay in a hotel. But there's no doubt that being in a hotel, you're, you're much more um, taken care of. Right. And, and you know, you can have long, horrible days that you're trekking and doing stuff and you come back and you're like, oh, there's been maid service. There's like little things like that. I found that in certain places as a English speaking person, having a hotel can be very helpful. So have you traveled to Japan at all? 
Well, I have a story about that, but the bottom line is no. I had a trip canceled right after the tsunami. Oh, gosh. I mean, that was a place that I found I was so happy that I went and I have no desire to go back. <laughs> so is that, is that you know, you ever have that experience? Sure. Like, God, this was educational. It was interesting. It was hard, though. I mean, it yeah. was, they do not speak English very widely. Uh, Obviously, there was like that moment in the subway where I stared at the sign trying to figure out which subway to get on. And of course, this is not our alphabet. No. Um, the concierge at my hotel had very nicely written down on a piece of paper what I should be looking for. And I literally was looking at my piece of paper, looking up at the board, <laughs> looking at my paper. And I probably was standing there for 15 minutes. Nobody tr- would help me. Right. Then total gringo walks by. He says, hey, do you need some help? I said, oh, my God, I love you. Where are you from? He goes, oh, I'm from California, but I've been here for 20 years. He said, looks at the piece of paper. He starts laughing. He goes, you're on the wrong track. I said, would they have let me stay there for an hour? He goes, no, they would have let you stay there forever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had a fairly similar experience in China, which has a similar problem with the way the language is written and a lack of people uh, speaking English. By the way, you should be thankful you speak English. Uh, if you were from, uh, you know, let's say you were from um, Germ- Germany and you ran around trying to speak German all over the world, mm. you would find no one to help you, at least with English. We're very lucky. We should we should realize that. The language of travel around the world and younger people, maybe Japan's an exception, but most places, if you look for someone who's under 25, they probably speak some English. They've so, probably been watching YouTube. And I felt like the Chinese people were totally excited and interested and sort of like, hey, who are you? And this was a while ago, so it's almost 10 years ago that I was in China. I actually think I scared the crap out of these Japanese people. Like Mm -hmm. we're in, you know, we're in different places and I'm big, I'm tall. And that's very daunting. I felt like a lot of women looked at me and were a little frightened and turned away. I was a little too yeah. tall. And then my friend of mine who's blonde says, imagine, she's six feet and blonde. She Jeez. goes, oh, my God, they were touching my hair like crazy. It's, it is true. I, I shouldn't speak badly of the Chinese. They are great hosts. I had a, well, I tried, I took a boat up the Yangtze mm. River. And I, like is my want, I decided to get off at a random town where there was not only no one who spoke English, there were no signs, even with Roman, like even like a store sign. You couldn't even tell what kind of a store it was. No. The people were very curious about me and were very nice to me. And one woman, the hotel clerk in, in one place, um, I was asking her through Google Translate, by the way, a great tool for travelers these days. It makes it easier than it used to be. Right. Uh, where should I have breakfast? She called her son in Beijing who spoke English, put me on the phone with him. We decided on a place because he was from the town, so he knew a place for lamb noodles. Handed the phone back to her. He talked to her. She gets gets up from behind the reception desk in the hotel, takes me outside, puts me in her car, drives me to the lamb noodle place, orders for me, waits while I eat, and then drives me back to the hotel. Okay, so there it is. That's experience quintessential. What's your view on self-guided or getting tour guides when you go to a place that... I mean, obviously, you don't necessarily need a tour guide in Florence or in Paris because it's pretty easy to get around. But what about places where you think it might be either more efficient or you're going to get something much different? There's certain places that you sort of have to have a guide. So there's a lot of nature-oriented or adventure travel kind of places or that you you sort of stuck without a guide. I was recently in the Amazon in, in Brazil, and you can't really do the Amazon on your own. First of all, it's dangerous. Second of all, you couldn't get to the place. I had a, an amazing four-mile, four-kilometer, two-mile, whatever that is, 
kilometers and miles. It's so confusing. <laughs> we never went metric. It was about a three-hour walk through a rainforest, like a real primary forest, with a guide who was part indigenous showing us what all the plants were and sort of chopping at the bark with his machete so we could see the little milky substance come out and he'd say how he'd feed it to his kids and stuff like that. That's the sort of thing you need to evaluate. Is this something I really need a guide for? Is it something that I can print something out? A lot of walking tours are available that you can kind of just print out. And I really recommend actually printing them out. And you can get a lot of information that way. And that's kind of fun. You're wandering. You're following a map. Uh, and then there's other places you can just kind of you know, walk around on, on your own. Food tours is, is a good thing to do. I, I certainly – I'm not really big on full package tours where you're, you're be, being taken everywhere by a guide. Some people like that. It's fine. But you do just have much less incentive to talk to anybody. Uh, I'm totally into taking tours like a three-hour tour. Yeah. That was oh, Gilgut's Island. I was just going to say, Mark, <laughs> cue that music. A three-hour um, tour. Right. And, but unlike the Gilligan's Island tour, usually they only last for three hours. And then you can go out and do stuff on your own or go back to some of the places or maybe at the end. When you do take a tour, always ask the guide for a restaurant that's a, recommendation. That's, a, that's you know, the best. Sort of thing. I do recommend that people be careful about how they ask for restaurant recommendations because in many cases, the person will just send you to the kind of place that they always send all the other travelers. I, yeah. I like to change the question up a little bit and say, like, where's the last place you took your family or sometimes I try to, depending on the culture, I'll sort of say, look, I want you to recommend me a restaurant with local food and a local experience. But if I see another tourist in that place, I'm going to come back and I'm going to have a word with you. Nice. And I kind of joke around like that so they know I'm kind of serious. It's right. Like, it's like when you they say, how spicy do you want your food? And if you really love spicy food, you kind of have to say, look, I'm not the average traveler. Yeah. You can serve it to me like you serve it to the other people who live here. And if you don't sort of go out of your way to be like, look, buddy, then you're just going to get the normal experience. Let's talk a little bit about how to prepare to go on vacation. Mm. In other words... How do we disconnect? Because to have this experience, to say a guide for the globally curious, if you want to be globally curious, you have to be present. And checking your phone every 16 minutes is not going to help you. First of all, I have a whole appendix in my book. It's called travel mode. I compare it with airplane mode. Like in airplane, you turn on airplane mode so you don't interfere with, you know, whatever. Whatever baloney that is, is. I believe in something called travel mode, which doesn't exist, but you can sort of enforce it upon yourself. There's certain things you shouldn't do when you're traveling. You should not be posting to Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or whatever while you're in a place visiting a museum or visiting sites or whatever. You should wait until you get back to your hotel. If you're gonna, if you have to post, wait until you get back to your hotel. So in my imaginary world where travel mode exists, it actually has a GPS function that doesn't let you post to social media unless you're in your hotel. Mm. Uh, that's the sort of thing I would recommend because it's just, it's distracting, it's a pain. Also, I don't know why people feel the need to show where they are in real time. Whatever happened to like getting back, coming back home and telling a story about where you were? Oh, um, I think that you are th- showing your age, sir. Throwback. Th- <laughs> well, I'm not saying that you should have a slideshow and invite your neighbors over. That's really, that really is horrifying. Talking, like, it's 1980s or something like that. But you, your friends do not need to know where you are at that exact moment. How about a little throwback Thursday a couple weeks later? That's a modern thing. Yeah. Here's where I was. I have friends who take great pictures when they travel. I'm thinking of one guy in particular. And 
you don't ever see where he is while he's there. But for a few months afterwards, you can sure bet that every Thursday or a couple times a week, you're going to see a beautiful picture, which he chose and actually won on the computer and cropped it and made it into something really beautiful and then showed it. And of course, sometimes people come and like, I can't believe you're in uh, Ethiopia. I'm here too. Let's get together. He's like, I'm not in Ethiopia. I was right. there like last August. But that's just as good, if not better. And it does take you out of the moment just to be thinking about what other people are thinking of you. I don't think there's any reason at all to be looking at text messages or emails or anything. Tell the few people who might need to get in touch with you, call me. Yeah. I'll pick up a phone if I'm actually receiving a phone call. If not, I'm going to check it once a day. Right. It's probably not reasonable to ask people to leave their phones in the hotel. That used to be reasonable about 10 years ago. Or Now people, you need Google Maps in case you get lost, right. that sort of thing. That's okay. Um, but maybe don't get a data plan for being abroad. So you have to go to a restaurant and hook up to the Wi-Fi or something like right. that. Right. Even that, it's still hard to get a data plan in some places and it's expensive. But within about five or 10 years, it's not going to be the case. You're going to have data everywhere you go. Your phone is going to work everywhere you go. So don't turn it on. Okay, hope you enjoyed that. We'll have part two of our interview with Seth tomorrow. We are so grateful that you are listening. We are so happy to celebrate Independence Day with you. Here's your Independence Day advice. Get some independence from thinking about your money nonstop, please. Go have a good weekend. Enjoy yourself. Celebrate the good part of the country, please. Okay, have fun. Be safe. Grit, growth, grace. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Do you know a high schooler who is a natural leader and loves to give back to their community? The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's Student Visionaries of the Year program might be the perfect opportunity, forming strong teams to support them. Student Visionaries of the Year candidates fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor in their local community. This seven-week philanthropic leadership development program helps students gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Not to mention, it looks great on college applications. But most importantly, it's a chance for students to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students.